Our theme this morning is the doctrine of God's providence. Uh, and I, what I mean by providence, I think, will come out in what we are looking at. There's a text in the sense in which we can anchor this uh, message together, and that's in Ex- Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, where it says, He that is God hath made everything beautiful in this in his time. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. First, we need to just ask and quickly summarize what this book of Ecclesiastes is about. I suspect it's not the commonest book most of us uh, would go to, but it is part of God's word. It's part of that genre of God's word, which is called wisdom literature, uh, such as Proverbs and Job. Because wisdom, the thought of divine wisdom, is very much at the center of the thought, the center of gravity, as it were, of the book. We know that this book was written by Solomon. Uh, We know that he was the son of David, and he was, we're told, a preacher. But he wrote it uh, as an older and wiser man than when he wrote the Proverbs. You see, there are two ways of gaining wisdom, two ways of gaining spiritual knowledge. The first is uh, by giving in to Satan. That was the wrong way that Adam and Eve took in the Garden of Eden when Satan, with a half-truth, said, if you eat of that forbidden fruit in the day you'll do it, you will have a knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like God. And there was a half-truth there because they did discover a knowledge of evil but they did it by experiencing it, by embracing evil. That's the wrong way to get spiritual knowledge. And the other way, of course, is to resist the devil, to resist sin and Satan. That was the way that Jesus Christ uh, had in his human experience a knowledge of good and evil. But Solomon, as he makes clear in this book of Ecclesiastes, he makes clear that he did enter into Uh, an extended knowledge of good and evil through experience, the kind of experience he shouldn't have had. Uh, For example, in chapter 2, he says how he uh, began to pursue various earthly goals in order to see what it was like under the sun, as he puts it. But he came to repentance. And like Jonah, he's left us a book which displays his repentance and it displays the lessons he found. So we do not have to embrace evil. We can learn the lessons, as it were, by the negative example of Solomon, uh, by just simply reading and pondering what true wisdom is. Of course, we all need to be saved. We're all born sinners. That is the first step in wisdom but then having taken that step by the grace of God we need to gain spiritual knowledge not by giving in to Satan but by resisting him so this is a book then about wisdom and Solomon is sharing the fruit of his knowledge the book has two main themes and again I'm keeping it brief but we need to understand these in order to see what this chapter 3 is about. Two main themes or two main tracks, as it were, that go through 
the book, and they intermingle. The first is summarized by this phrase, under the sun, under the sun. Uh, Can't now just find an example. Oh, yes, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment. Or chapter 4, verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. It's a kind of almost a technical term. And it's really a phrase that means looking at life from the perspective that the the horizon is the sun. That there's nothing beyond the sun. That we can just ignore, as it were, God and just live as though the sun, uh, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, as though that's all that life is about. This is the kind of life that vast numbers on our planet are living today and vast numbers in our nation sadly are living today they are living under the sun and one of the opening lessons of this book is this that a life like that is futile it seems futile it seems empty vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun ultimately he says If there's no God, and if you just live for the here and now, ultimately it it seems meaningless. And he supports that argument through this book, if that is the horizon. But, of course, that's not his horizon. (coughs) He has another horizon. He has another string to his bow, another track along which he moves, and that is his wise conclusions. And his wise conclusions are those of wisdom. They are concerned with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And without sort of dotting about the book, let me just take you straight to chapter 12. And you'll remember what that chapter is about, perhaps, but this is the most well-known chapter of Ecclesiastes. It begins, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. And if you haven't remembered him then, remember him as soon as you can, before you die. Because as he goes on to explain in this chapter, there comes a time when you are unable to think, unable to do, unable to uh, will. And through allegory there, he describes old age. And he comes to that point in verse 6 where the silver cord is loosed and the golden bowl is broken. Something very precious is smashed. What is that? That's life. Something very intricate and designed is broken. The picture, the wheel, what's that? It's life. And then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And so, right at the conclusion of this book, it is fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Now, of course, there's much more to the Bible than Ecclesiastes. There are many more things that can be said. That's why we have a whole Bible. There are other truths concerning how we fear God, how we come to know God through Jesus Christ. But as part of this biblical spread is the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And we need, finally, as we think what this book is about, we need to just understand what is motivating Solomon as he does all this. We can say in a word that what is motivating him is compassion. Compassion for those whose lives is being lived under the sun. So in chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, he tells us what effort he makes to seek out the best way of explaining things to people, to teach the people knowledge, to set in order proverbs, to find acceptable words, uh, words of truth, and to use those words to goad and to to push people to think uh, about the Lord. And ultimately those words come from one shepherd, even the Lord himself. You see, he wants to make a connection with those who are lost, to those who think there's nothing but what is there under the sun. He wants to make a connection. And so he has a strategy in the way in which he puts all this in this book. His strategy is to draw alongside people and to lead them to God. So when he talks about what is under the sun, he picks up things that you couldn't disagree with. Unless you're insane, of course, unless you're morally and spiritually totally insane, you couldn't disagree with them. So, for example, in chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13, as he's thinking about life as a whole, he says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. And most people would say, yes, of course, that's what, that's what we have to do. We have to, uh, to be comfortable, to be prosperous, uh, to get on with life and enjoy it and, and to do good. You'd have to be insane not to think like that. Of course, there are some people who are insane, uh, morally speaking, and there are other parts of the Bible for them. But this is a, a book of apologetics, so he's making a case, but he doesn't leave it there. Notice just that phrase at the end of verse 13, it is the gift of God. He just takes them one stage further. Or take, for example, chapter 3, verse 15. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. Now that's summarizing what he's said in chapter 1, where he talks about the sea, uh, the rivers running into the sea, and the sea is not full. He, he's talking about the water cycle, the rain into the rivers, the rivers to the sea, but the sea is not full. It keeps going round and round and round. He's just summarizing that point here. And nobody would disagree with this. Yes, there is a sense in which what's happened in the past is going to happen in the present and in the future. We've been here before. We have deja vu about these events. People today are thinking about 1939, are they not? As we think of the events going on in Ukraine or as the build-up to that. That which hath been is now and that which is to be hath already been. But notice he doesn't leave it there. He brings in his godly conclusion... And God requireth that which is past. You see, he's taking this on one step further. Just one more example. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. 
For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. It's, it's almost common sense, isn't it? But notice how he then just takes the person on one step further. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. But when you bring God into it, as well as your friend, your partner, your spouse, when you bring God into it, then it's a threefold cord. And perhaps there is here, therefore, my first application is this, simply this. We need to be like this with people. We need to be like this with our society, with folk who haven't Christ. We need to be able to somehow get alongside them, understand what life under the sun is like. Yes, there are things we can agree with, and then nudge them on. Keep going one step forward. There are different ways of reaching people, but this is one of them. And Solomon is sharing here his wisdom. Well, that by way of a fairly lengthy introduction, but let's look now at chapter 3 of this book. This is a key chapter to the book. And you'll notice that very beautiful and poetic first section of the chapter a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, and so on. What is Solomon doing here by these couplets? Well, they are figures of speech, actually, and I forget the exact word for them, but there is a figure of speech which describes the, this kind of construction, this kind of metaphor. What he's doing is taking two opposites, to be born, to die, to kill, to heal, to weep, to love. And in those two opposites, he's implying everything else in between. So really he's saying this is all of life. We just take the two opposite things and that implies everything between. So he goes through so many activities and experiences here. At the time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, that could be to do with building, it could be to do with war. Because in ancient warfare, buildings were demolished and then the ground was sown with the stones to prevent the ground being used agriculturally. It was a kind of warfare, economic warfare. Time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, a time to lose. So that's the first point. He's here thinking of all of life. But then we have to ask the question, which particular strand, which particular track is he on here? Is he on the track of under the sun? Or is he on the track of a wise conclusion in the fear of the Lord? And we have a very significant uh, clue. Because notice how he begins. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose, not under the sun, but under the heaven, under the heaven. And the word that he uses there for heaven is the same Hebrew word that's used throughout the scriptures for heavens, uh, 
that the highest heavens, the stars, the firmament, that, that, that particular aspect of the creation. He's not using the word sun. He's using the word heavens or heaven. And so you see, he's signaling that he's giving us some true wisdom now. That he's looking at a higher perspective than the earthbound sinner. And of course, this is what he's seeking to communicate to the earthbound sinner. He's saying, yes, there are all of these things in life, all of these experiences, all of these activities. Uh, there's this, you might call it a rich tapestry. Sometimes it's a very grievous tapestry of life, a time of love, a time of hate, a time of war, a time of peace. But then there's another key word, another clue as to what he's saying. Not merely heaven, but the word that he uses there for time. Because it's not perhaps a very um, small word, an insignificant word that we might use for time. You know, what's the time? Is it time yet? No, it's a stronger word. It's a more emphatic word. It's a word that means appointed time. So in Psalm 102, we have a key use of this word. Uh, the, the, the psalmist mourning over Zion's affliction, mourning over the uh, fact that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. But then he says in verse 13 of this psalm, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For her servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. The set time, the appointed time. He senses, does the psalmist, that this is the appointed time for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And what Solomon is saying here, what the wise man is saying here, is that there is in God's providence an appointed time for every activity all that happens when we look at it from under the heavens as we look at it as it were through that grid there is an appointed season for every activity every human activity because God is the God of providence and the climax therefore to this poetic section is found at the beginning of verse 11. He, that is God, hath made everything beautiful in his time. And notice again, I'm just thinking of words a bit this morning. Notice there's another word that we need to understand. It's that word beautiful. It can also be translated as fair. And just let me give you three uses of that word. Firstly, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 12, where Jesse sends for David, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with all, and ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance, or of a fair countenance and goodly to look to. A very handsome young man. His countenance was handsome. It was fair. It's the same word. And then, in Psalm 48, verse two, we find this word used in connection with Zion. Psalm 48, 
Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Speaking typologically there of the church, the beauty of God's church, of his people. And then one more use in the Song of Solomon, chapter 6 and verse 4. Just after Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4, the bridegroom speaking of his beloved bride, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. So we have the beauty of the church. We have the beauty of uh, God's beloved. We have the beauty of God's anointed It's a strong word here. It's not a weak word. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Now essentially, what this preacher is communicating to people who live under the sun is this, that there is such a thing as the providence of God. God at work in everything. And it's a rich and beautiful thing. It's the same doctrine that we find in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Or in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, it's the same doctrine, but looked at from a slightly different angle. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, that God hath put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And we need to reflect on the beauty of God's providence. Let's just think about that for a bit. His providence, his care, his control extends to the smallest things. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The smallest things that happen in your life and my life and in the lives of everybody. The tiniest things, where you cross the road, whether you cross the road or not, who you meet. It it extends secondly to repetitive things. That's one of the things that uh, the writer here is Talking about in this book, he talks about repetition. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. It's all repetitive. Day and night, it's repetitive. But God's providence extends to that. And then thirdly, because he is a well-earthed preacher. He tells us that God's providence extends to the worst things, the worst things. Chapter 8, verse 12, he, he has something to say about the worst things. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked, Neither shall he prolong his days which are as a shadow because he feareth not before God. 
The point is this, he's not taken his eye off the worst things. And there's a sense in which he has made the worst things beautiful in its time. Think of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter preached at Christ's crucifix, about Christ's crucifixion on the day of Pentecost, and he declared this. He said, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There could be no worse sin. There could be no greater demonic attack than to put the Son of God on that cross. But it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God there was a beauty, a fairness in the season and in the action, even though God himself is not the author of sin and in no way approves of sin. It extends to the worst things. It extends to the darkest things. Think of Job. Think of the activities of Satan. And yet the book of Job tells us that God was preparing a wonderful type of Christ in that, in that man who was so mature and so godly and held on to his God through such spiritual attack, even though at times he showed his weakness and vulnerability and sinfulness, yet he held on to God. It's helpful to us, I think, in our day to notice that Solomon brings something else into the providence of God. It's what we might call the frustratingly unpredictable things of life. Frustratingly unpredictable. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. There's a sense in which it isn't the best who get to the top of the tree. It isn't always those who work hardest who get the greatest rewards. It isn't always those who have the most ability who are recognized. And in that chapter, he goes on to say, This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city and few men within it, and there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised. And what Solomon is saying, well, there was deliverance. There was a beauty in that. But notice, it was frustratingly unpredictable. And then finally, God's providence extends to the so-called chance happenings. And we think there's a wonderful example of this. Jacob sending Joseph to find his 11 brothers in the book of Genesis. Joseph went wandering around in the field until a certain man, we're told, we don't know his name, meets him and says, who are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. The man tells him. He goes to his brethren. What do they do? They throw him into a pit. They sell him as a slave to the Midianites. And there will be those today who would tell us it was the devil that engineered that encounter. But it wasn't the devil. 
That man's minor chance role was pivotal because it was through that affliction of Joseph that he was able to say to his brothers, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. He's made everything beautiful in his time and as Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us, that's everything. A biblical perspective assigns everything to God's providence. Nothing is outside its scope. Nothing that happens to us is outside its scope. In his great book, History of Redemption, Jonathan Edwards says there is a consistency, order, and beauty to God's providence and a unity. So let me close with some brief applications. Our lives are made up of all or many circumstances, are they not? Many endeavours and many actions. Things happen to us, things frustrate us, little things, bigger things. Now, if we are living without God in our lives, ultimately there's no point to it. But of course, there is a point. The point is, as the writer says, we should fear the Lord and trust him. And it's only from that perspective of living a life under heaven that we have a perspective of wisdom. And the first thing we need to say about our lives and about living in them out in the sight of God is that he makes no mistakes. He's put us where we are at this time in our circumstances. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Eternity will declare it, even though we do not yet see it. Secondly, the whole thing is difficult in the sense, as it says in chapter 3, verse 11, he has set the world in their heart. Another uh, rendering would be he has set eternity in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. God has so constructed us, and he is so great, that we know this is going on when we listen to this wisdom, and yet we cannot fully plumb what God is doing. Chapter 8, verse 7. Sorry, chapter 8, verse 17. Then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, Father, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. He's saying whether you're on the track of living under the sun, or whether you're on the track of living in the fear of God, ultimately you cannot know fully what God is doing. And yet... Notice in chapter 8, verse 5, the second part of the verse, I'll read the whole verse. Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgments. We cannot really fathom it out, and yet we can grow in discernment and in maturity. We can learn to look for God's providence. We can learn to admire it, and yet we cannot fully plumb it out. Now let me just give you a couple of examples of this. 
one of which I know I've mentioned before, and I think you well know it, Matthew Henry, the Puritan Bible commentator. He was robbed one day, and this was his prayer. He wrote this to God, I thank thee first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because though they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. See, the, the, God's made everything beautiful in his time. There's a, a wonder in those providences. Or think of something that Spurgeon said in one of his sermons in 1880. He's talking about a Puritan, an old Puritan, who his son came to see him. And the young man came in and said, Father, I have had a very special providence as I rode here today. My horse stumbled three times very badly, yet I was not thrown down. The father answered this, And I have had an equally special providence in riding here. My horse never stumbled all the way so that I was not thrown. It's looking for that beauty of the Lord. And think of that beauty in the way in which God arranged it, if you are a Christian, that you should be brought from out of living under the sun and into the fear of the Lord. Think of the circumstances, think of the meetings, think of the conversations, think of the books you read, think of the, what you heard, think of who your parents were, think of who your friends were, think of where you lived. Every part of that bringing you to that point where you close with Jesus Christ as your saviour, if you're a Christian. There's a time and a purpose, a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, and a time to be born again. Have you been born again? I close by reading you the graveyard of the highly useful preacher of the gospel, John Berridge, in the 18th century, vicar of Everton in Bedfordshire. And this is what his gravestone says. Here lays the earthly remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton, and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ. By the way, Berridge wrote this before he died. The itinerant servant of Jesus Christ who loved his master and his work and after running on his errands many years was called up to wait on him above. Wait on him above. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without a new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716. Remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. Admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1755. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Christ, January the 22nd, 1793. Of course, he wouldn't have known that last bit. January 22nd, 1793 time to be born 
and a time to die, but a time too to be born again. Let us pray.